Hello and welcome to Reactives Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week our podcast is focusing on Kazakhstan, the escalated demonstrations that caused unrest across the country, Russia's involvement and the possible measures coming from the EU. We are also talking about the first informal meeting of foreign and defense ministers under the French EU Council presidency, the hot topics on the agenda and the upcoming military strategy document. Instability and unrest were the colors painting Kazakhstan's political and social spheres during the past few weeks. And to shed some light on what is happening there, I spoke with Euractiv senior editor Georgi Gotev and with Jennifer Brick Murtazashvili, associate professor of international affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Now, Georgi, demonstrations are going for days in Kazakhstan. How did everything start? Every, uh... The protest uh, started on 1st January, immediately after the new year, uh, in the western province of uh, Mangistau, after a decision uh, the previous day to liberalize the price of uh, liquefied petroleum gas. Uh, I have been to Kazakhstan and I know that uh, uh, LPG is a popular car fuel. It's uh, very cheap. It costs uh, 50 tenge, which is... Uh, 11 cents. But uh, after the liberalization of the price, uh, it went double. Thus, uh, automobilists uh, protested and many people uh, joined them. Uh, this very rapidly became a social and uh, political uh, protest movement. Uh, there were demands uh, for the resignation of the government, uh, uh, for bringing the former leader Nazarbayev uh, uh, under account and uh, stripping him of his uh, remaining official duties. I think one has to understand that uh, in the western part of uh, Kazakhstan, when the protest uh, started, Nazarbayev uh, is not popular. This is not uh, his tribe. And how and why did these peaceful demonstrations escalate to the point of the unrest we witnessed across the country these past few days? Well, the situation now is actually calm, but let me explain uh, how uh, the unrest uh, evolved. Mm -hmm. And I base uh, uh, my account on what my best uh, journalistic source uh, told me. The protest started spreading uh, from the West uh, since uh, 4th of January across the country up to Almaty. Uh, Almaty is the former capital and it is in the east and it's a huge country so it's the opposite side of the country and in front of the Almaty city house a peaceful manifestation uh, took place uh, initially during the day of uh, 4 January they were peaceful in the sense that protesters were not armed and the police did not use uh, little weapons Uh, during the same night, uh, the president Tokayev uh, called the meeting of the country's security council, which is normally chaired by Nazarbayev. Uh, Nazarbayev was reportedly in Almaty on New Year's Day, but uh, we don't know where he was uh, after 3 January. President Tokayev announced the state of emergency across the country and a curfew from 11 in the evening until 7 in the morning, starting from the 5th of January. He also announced that Nazarbayev is no longer the chair of the Security Council, that he is taking over, that the price of LPG returns to 50 tenge, and that uh, a week later he would announce a new government and reforms. 
So on 5th of January in the morning, uh, things uh, returned to normal despite some clashes during the night. Uh, although the clashes were not worse than those with the yellow vests uh, in France, if we compare them. At that time, uh, many thought that the crisis, uh, be- despite being the worst uh, in the 30 years of independence of Kazakhstan, is over, and that the transition from Nazarbayev to Tokayev is finally achieved. But in fact, the worst was yet to come. And the worst came during the night of the 5th to the 6th January, when people from the periphery of Almaty went out on the streets, and until the afternoon of that day, an unprecedented number of protesters, around 20,000 people, gathered at the city centre. One has to understand that there have been no such uh, large protests in this country before. And there were roughly 300 police forces around the city council with the aim of protecting it. But this large number of, uh, of people attacked the city council from two sides, and for the first time, uh, firearms uh, were seen among the manifestants. It became clear that uh, in the meantime, some shops uh, selling hunting weapons have been looted, and it became obvious that uh, the manifestants are very well organized, that there are cars bringing them regularly automatic uh, weapons and iron rods. And uh, uh, this is when uh, firearms uh, were used against the police forces. uh, And the police forces are, in fact, uh, conscripts, uh, young people aged 18 to 20. And their equipment was mainly batons and shields. And uh, they had no order to shoot at the protesters. So the police forces uh, flee and uh, uh, the rioters, uh, they got uh, distributed Molotov cocktails and they set fire on Uh, the two sides of the building of the city council. Uh, They entered the building, um, they entered another building, which was the residence of Nazarbayev, also set fire on it. Uh, Then they attacked the building of the prosecutor's office, and uh, there are weapons in this building, so they took the weapons, they disarmed the policemen, uh, and uh, even beheaded uh, two of the policemen uh, who guarded that beating. It's important to say that uh, among the rioters, uh, there were people from the periphery of the capital, but also so-called bearded people, Salafists, uh, people who were very well organized and came in groups of uh, 25. And they created uh, groups of five in which uh, one trained militant is in command of four other people. And these are obviously people with combat experience. They are physically fit and uh, they uh, succeeded uh, very rapidly to overwhelm the uh, law enforcement forces. Okay, so what was the next move? The president deployed troops and referred to the demonstrations as a terroristic threat, and at the same time, Russia deployed troops to prevent a coup d'etat, according to President Nazarbayev. Now, how did Russia get involved, and what are the new developments? Well, indeed, it looked like uh, without Russia's help, uh, uh, the coup d'etat, as uh, Tokayev called it, uh, may have uh, succeeded. Tokayev speaks of uh, terrorists. uh, He speaks of Islamic uh, links. Uh, Of course, the question remains how such terrorism was imported. Um, How was it possible to have so many sleeping cells in the country without the authorities noticing? Uh, But... uh, um, Indeed, uh, the Russian troops uh, came. Kazakhstan is a member of the Moscow-led uh, Collective uh, Security Treaty Organization. 
And uh, it is in this uh, framework that uh, some 2,000 uh, troops uh, came to the rescue, although it appears that they have not been involved in uh, real combat. They were deployed uh, mainly in the capital, uh, Nur Sultan, and uh, it is likely that they will leave in the next uh, days. And to understand better Russia's role in Kazakhstan and what could have been done differently from the government's side to prevent the tension, I spoke with Jennifer Brick Murtazashvili, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Jennifer, we had the involvement of Russia in the recent demonstrations in Kazakhstan. How is that affecting the country's stability and why is Russia the support mechanism for Kazakhstan's government? So uh, Kazakhstan is a country that has always proclaimed itself, at least since independence, to have what they call a multi-vectored foreign policy. And this policy meant that Kazakhstan would have good relations with all of its neighbors and with other foreign powers. So balancing Russia and China and the United States and the EU, who all had interest in the country. And uh, the government was clear that it was not going to have, you know, be part of one alliance over another. Well, when the security situation deteriorated inside of Kazakhstan and President Tokayev called upon the Collective Security Treaty Organization, that is really a Russian organization, to keep his government going, to protect him, he put his own interests ahead of the country's sovereignty. And basically what he did is put an end to that multi-vector foreign policy and really gave Russia the keys to the country's foreign policy. So uh, Russia did send troops along with the other CSTO countries, um, Armenia, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. They all sent troops uh, to Kazakhstan. And what we saw immediately after this was calm. But this was also because President Tokayev had said that he was going to shoot to kill any protesters who continued uh, you know, protesting the government on the streets. So that really sent a chilling effect to many. And it's really not clear who was behind the violent protests in the capital city, Almaty. Um, as I noted, there were peaceful protests throughout the country. And in Almaty, which is the country's largest city in the former capital, there were violent protests that featured really kind of thuggish men. Uh, it was a very different kind of group that we saw in other cities. And what could have been done differently? The protests that we saw especially the early ones, were quite peaceful and they were focused on fuel prices and governance reform. And uh, for years, the government had promised more local input into public policy. Um, President Takayev had laid out a very uh, dynamic reform program that he never implemented. So I think that if President Tokayev had actually made good on many of his promises, we wouldn't have seen the kinds of protests that we saw. But the protests were also spurred, you know, in part by the large scale corruption in society. And that was sort of a background factor motivating everything, not the direct trigger, but it was, you know, in the background in everyone's mind. Now, the Russian troops are getting ready to leave the country soon. What will be the next day for Kazakhstan in terms of stability? So I'm not too concerned about the country's stability because, you know, what, and it's not entirely clear that they needed Russia to put down the protests. It seems that Russia was called in to gain control of the security services from the former president. That's my sense. So it wasn't because they feared stability. They feared 
some kind of rivalry between different factions inside the government. So Russia has said it's leaving. It will be leaving within two days. Apparently, they'll start leaving tomorrow. Um, but this means, so Russian troops are leaving, but this also means that Russia will still have an influence. So even though its troops are gone, people know that if there's more instability, Russia can come back at any second you know, and impose its order. Finally, the EU's foreign and defense ministers are meeting in Brest and they will discuss some measures over the crackdown in Kazakhstan. What can we expect here, Georgi? Well, the EU ministers are meeting on 13 and 14 January in the French city of Brest. And uh, indeed, uh, they will discuss uh, Kazakhstan. I think the most important uh, thing for them is to reach a common understanding um, uh, about what happened, what are the risks for Kazakhstan and for the region, uh, before deciding what actions uh, can be uh, taken. Uh, for me, it is clear that uh, today's Kazakhstan has become more dependent on Russia than before, and um, that uh, for the EU uh, to deal with this country and its authorities uh, will not be uh, business as usual. And Jennifer, before you leave, one last comment on Kazakhstan. I just think, you know, throughout all of this, we are thinking of Kazakhstan as this really violent, strange place. And I just want your listeners to know what a beautiful place it is filled with, um, you know, highly uh, curious population. It's a beautiful place. And I hope that this doesn't discourage your listeners uh, from ever visiting the country. Well, thank you, Georgi and Jennifer, for the useful insights in this story. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. And while speaking about the meeting of the EU's foreign and defense ministers in Brest, we move there for a bit to talk to Euractiv's Alexandra Brzozowski and Mathieu Pollet, who are on the ground covering the meeting. Alex, this week we see the first informal meeting of ministers under the French EU Council presidency. Foreign and defense ministers will discuss Russia, Ukraine and military operations. What will be the sticking points in the next few days? And what are the French plans regarding foreign and defense policy? I think, first of all, it's especially an interesting security context this meeting is taking place. We've had two high-level West Russia talks in the past days, one in Geneva, one um, later Russia meeting yesterday in Brussels. Both have not really brought any breakthrough, but at least uh, both sides said that they would continue the talks. So today we also have OSCE representatives discussing with Russia um, so, so that's that's the broader context of, of where this meeting here in Brest uh, of EU foreign and defense ministers is taking place. But I think the overarching perception has been that the EU has um, been sidelined in the talks. Uh, however, uh, EU's chief diplomat Borrell and actually also NATO Secretary General um, in Stoltenberg today and yesterday assured that w- that this has not been the case and that they received assurances that nothing will be decided or negotiated without the Europeans. Um, and also they stress that, you know, coordination with the Americans has been absolutely excellent, how they put it. 
Um, we will see how that perception um, goes into the meeting today. Uh, ministers will discuss Ukraine and Russia uh, in a broad context, but uh, since this is an informal meeting, there will be not no no decisions taking today uh, beyond maybe a political uh, statement. It will be also a lot about um, the parameters that the Europeans wish to push in the framework of the dialogue with Russia. So um, it might be possible that there are some European ideas uh, formulated, as, for example, the French and, and Borrell himself have uh, suggested. Uh, when it comes to priorities, I mean, defense and space um, are obviously high on the French agenda. And there's also set to be a discussion about China and the recent tensions with Lithuania over Taiwan. Um, before the meeting, a French official actually last week uh, told reporters that, you know, the correct format for the EU to talk to China would be the 27 plus one. Um, so instead of own initiatives by single member states like Germany, for example, um, who has pushed for the China investment agreement a year ago on its on its own, France back then backed it up. Um, so let's see what has changed um, since that that time um, after there was this trade dispute with, with Lithuania. An update to the EU's new upcoming military strategy document, the so-called strategic compass, will be discussed as well. Uh, there have been amendments submitted by member states, but has the language changed? This thing will follow us around until March, when it's supposed to be adapted by um, EU leaders uh, under the French presidency. Member states have been asked to submit their amendments by early January, and they have also done so. So. Uh, we have seen the updated draft already. Uh, we have um, seen it last night, and um, what I mean, what I can say is, it has expanded a bit in size uh, from 28 to 34 pages. And um, I will not go into the details on capabilities on potential instruments. I mean, that has yet to be compared. But um, most notably, the language on the threat analysis and the issues um, related to it have been have been modified. So. We remember that the first draft, uh, as I also told you um, when we spoke, I think, uh, for the first first podcast episode was that um, they were met with criticism because the threat from Moscow should have been probably better specified, as, as some member states um, have suggested. So um, though that has not been directly specified with some of the suggestions they made uh, before when it comes to military threats and occupation or weaponizing energy supply. But um, what is inside the new draft is that uh, uh, it includes a reference to foreign interference and disinformation and also conventional um, military instruments. But most importantly, I think, um, and that's likely a direct reaction to the current tensions with Russia over Ukraine, that it now includes um, a whole paragraph on Eastern partners and also the promise that the EU will boost cooperation with with those uh, countries um, in the area of security and defense. So that's that's quite a significant new language. Um, there's a specific reference to Georgia, Ukraine and Moldova. So the three most uh, hopeful prospects to to join the EU in the future. Well, it is an interesting development. Is there appetite for such a step among member states? So yes, well, in the last few months, um, some EU member states have argued that the EU to become a geopolitical actor needs to play a security role, not only in Africa, as, as the French want to push for, but also especially in the Eastern neighborhood. Um, Lithuania was one of them, other Eastern Europeans back, back that largely up. But 
We've also seen several non-Eastern European member states pushing for this. So uh, for sure, there's quite a few options. Um, one we've also already seen, which is security aid provided through the European Peace Facility. So, uh, But it remains to be seen, uh, though, what, what such security and defense support, as mentioned by the Compass, would look like in practice. So we're still waiting for movement on the potential EU military advisory and training mission for Ukraine, but um, those discussions haven't progressed yet, and it's also unlikely that um, there will be movement very soon with, with the current tensions. And now, Mathieu, moving to you, how do you see the presidency agenda playing out in the next few months, since we have the French elections coming up in April, mid-presidency? Yes, so it will be very interesting to, to follow indeed. So first, the presidency agenda may get re- disrupted at some point by the COVID-19 situation, right? So a few summits are lined up for the next six months all over France, but they could very well be turned into online events if we were to have like even bigger corona surges. Uh, but most importantly, I would say, as you mentioned already, the next presidential election is to take place in April. Um, and this could be a game, a game changer, really, on, on several levels. The good news is that the European questions will very likely make their way into debate on the national level. The downside, however, is that every issue will become, therefore, highly political. In practical terms, the national election also means that France will need to move fast on the big files um, Emmanuel Macron wants to be able to claim responsibility for. So after April, there are two scenarios. Either Macron is being renewed as president and will be able to, to move forward the topics he didn't get the chance to before, or a new president is being elected. In that case, it can either get messy or business as usual. But anyway, this new president won't get much time to do anything in particular at the EU Council presidency, really. And is there any area France wants to focus when it comes to the foreign policy of the EU for the next six months? Africa is set to take uh, an important place in the foreign agenda that France wants to, to push forward. Last month, Emmanuel Macron said he wanted to see some structuring initiatives towards Africa and that the link between Africa and Europe is, and I quote here, the great political and geopolitical project of the decades to come. Um, he said that he was really keen to launch a new deal with, with the continent. Uh, here in Brest, actually, uh, a working session will take place uh, on Friday with Moussa Faki Mahamad, the chairman of the African Union Commission, and Aïssata Tarsal, the um, Senegal's foreign minister. Last but not least, Emmanuel Macron will, will also host next month in Brussels a summit with the African leaders to discuss what actually these structuring initiatives he, he told about are going to look like. Well, thank you, Alex and Mathieu, for reporting from Brest. You can follow the latest developments on this meeting on Euractiv.com. And our time is up for this week. I am Evikiori, and this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit Euractiv.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.